I'd like to welcome you to Prairie View Christian Church. We're glad you've chosen to worship here with us this morning. And before I get started today, I do want to thank everyone who was here last week for our first Kid City Sunday. If you were here, you may have noticed that the chairs may have been a little bit more crowded, the worship may have been a little bit louder, but all the kids did a great job, all the parents did a great job. We are extremely thankful for how that went, and we're thankful that we had the opportunity to worship with our kids and thankful that they had the opportunity to worship with us as well. And just in case you're curious, if you are a parent especially, our next Kid City Sunday is going to be September 22nd. So mark your calendars, get ready for September 22nd for Kid City Sunday. On top of that, I do want to mention that next week we'll be starting a new sermon series going through the book of James. We'll be spending seven weeks in the book of James. We hope that you will be here with us for that. The book of James, maybe unlike any other New Testament book, challenges us to let our faith infiltrate every aspect of life. Not just a Sunday morning thing, not just something we do when we gather here in this building, but rather our faith affects every decision that we make, every relationship that we have, every place that we go, every word that we say. And James teaches us that, and we'll be spending seven weeks looking at that starting next week. Now we are in the sixth and final week of our six-week series going through the book of Psalms, looking at six different genres of psalm each week. And the first week, we looked at a psalm of wisdom, the idea of making godly choices. That is biblical wisdom. It may not necessarily make your life better right now. It may not make your life easier right now. But godly choices are what God expects his people to do. And the psalmist advises us to make those godly decisions, allow God to help us make those decisions. The second week, we looked at a psalm of lament examining how the psalmist just pours out his heart to God. He pours out his doubts, his fears, his worries, his stresses, everything. He doesn't act like everything's okay and put on some sort of facade to pretend that everything's great before he approaches God. No, he's open and he's honest with God. But in those laments, in those times of hardship, in those times of darkness, what we see is that in every single psalm of lament, in all of the Psalms, every single one of them has some little tiny glimmer of hope, some little tiny glimmer of trust in the midst of the hardship that the person is facing. The third week, we looked at a Psalm of Thanksgiving, talking about how we often have so many things to do, we often have so many responsibilities, and we get through one thing that's worrying us or freaking us out or stressing us out, and then we immediately start worrying about the next thing. And the psalmist encourages us to take time to thank God before we move on to the next bad thing, the next hardship, take time to thank God for what he's done with the previous thing. And then fourth, we looked at a psalm of confidence. And we talked about how David said in Psalm 23 that even though he walked through the valley of the shadow of death, he would fear no evil. He was confident that his shepherd... The true shepherd, God the Father, would watch over him and guide him and direct him and protect him. And he saw this firsthand because he stared down Goliath. So he had reason for confidence. And we too could have that same confidence that David had, not because of anything we've done, but rather because of what Christ has done for us. And then last week, we looked at the idea of a psalm of remembrance. It's basically the idea that we are called to remember where we came from. 
Psalms of remembrance often record past events in Israel's history. And they encourage the Israelite and they encourage us to remember what God has done for us. To remember how he came through when we needed him to. Remember the deliverance he provides. Remember the promises that he keeps. A psalm of remembrance encourages us and challenges us to never forget our roots. And that brings us to where we are today, the sixth psalm we'll be looking at, which is a call to worship. Now, you may already know what a call to worship is if you've ever spent any time in a more traditional or maybe liturgical church. In some churches, they have a formal call to worship in every service. And what that looked like in the old days was there would be some sort of spiritual leader or preacher or priest or pastor who would stand up in front of the congregation or in the midst of the community, and he would start doing something. And that was everyone's cue that it was a call to worship. It could be reading a scripture. It could be a responsive reading. It could be singing a hymn. It could be a prayer. But it was always the cue for everyone to put down what they're doing, forget everything else, leave the stresses and the worries and the distractions at the door, and devote their hearts and minds to worship for this little period of time. Now, we don't do a formal call to worship here at Prairie View every single week. We don't have some regimented call to worship here. But for the sake of our sermon today, we're going to do a little tiny call to worship right now. I'm not going to sing a hymn, but I'm going to ask that you pray with me, stand up and pray with me, and this will be our call to worship before we start our sermon. Father God, thank you for this day. Thank you for the privilege and the honor that we have to come worship you. Thank you that we can worship you in song, that we can worship you in reading your word. We worship you in taking communion. We worship you praying together. God, I pray that every single one of us today will leave our distractions at the door and that if nothing else, we can give you these next 30 or 45 minutes of this service. I pray that we'll honor you. I pray that we will never forget the privilege that it is to worship you. I pray that we'll never forget what you've done for us. Thank you that we can come here in this beautiful building, even though we know that no building can contain you. Thank you that we can come here and worship freely, worship together. We love you. We thank you for Jesus. We ask all these things in his name, and we worship you. Amen. Picking up with where we are in our psalm series, we're going to be in Psalms 96 and 98 today. So if you want to turn your Bibles with me to Psalms 96 and 98, we're going to be spending most of our time in 96, a little tiny bit of time in 98. But actually, Psalms 96 through 99 are considered to be one little unit of the psalms. And 96 and 98 are kind of meant to go together, and 97 and 99 are meant to go together. So we're looking at Psalms 96 and 98. I'm going to start reading in verse 1, if you'd like to follow along with me. O sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. Now, just in these first three verses, this is more than just some pretty poetic-sounding introduction to this psalm. There are actually some pretty big claims about worship in these three verses. The first thing that we see, sing to the Lord a new song. 
You know, sometimes we think that worship is just singing. But really, worship can be so much more than just singing. And we are called to find new and creative and fresh ways to worship God all the time. This isn't just about finding new songs, literally, as in we can only sing songs that are five years old or less. That is not what the psalm is saying at all. It's talking about finding fresh ways to worship God. Because worship is more than just singing. I recently read an article about a man in the New England area who went to a church service. He was a retired barber. And the preacher encouraged him to find a way to worship throughout the week. Find a creative way to worship Monday through Saturday. Look for the gifts that God has given you. Look for the skills that God has given you. And find a way to use those to worship him. Find a way to use those to love your neighbor and love him. So the barber went home and he thought, okay, I can find a way to worship God, I guess. So what he ended up doing was he took all of his haircutting equipment and he took a chair and he went out to a park, just a public park. He set up his chair and he started giving free haircuts and he was running his haircutting equipment off of a car battery. So he's giving people free haircuts, thinking it was just a nice thing to do for people. But naturally, the people who started coming most were people who couldn't afford haircuts. They were homeless people. And so he thought that, you know what, this is a great way for me to love my neighbor, to just give out free haircuts. And really, he thought it would be a practical help for them because he was thinking, you know what, maybe me giving them a haircut will somehow increase their chances of getting a job because they'll be a little bit more presentable when they sit down for an interview or when they fill out an application. But even deeper than just those practical implications, The barber found himself discovering that when he gave one of these homeless people a haircut, it may not have seemed like a whole lot to all of us, but he discovered that when he gave these people a haircut, he was restoring some of their dignity that they had lost. They didn't have a lot. They didn't have a lot to be proud of, but at least they had a nice haircut. They didn't have to be embarrassed about the way they looked. That was that man's creative, innovative, fresh way of discovering how to worship God, how he could worship God with the gifts and skills and abilities that God had blessed him with. He was singing a new song because worship is more than just singing. Look at verse 2. It says, bless his name, tell of his salvation from day to day. Along with often thinking that worship is just singing, I think we often find ourselves believing that worship only happens on Sunday mornings. And part of that is the church's fault. Because we always say things like, come worship with us on Sunday morning. Come to our worship service on Sunday morning. We hope that you will be here for worship. And slowly but surely, we subconsciously present this idea, whether we mean to or not, that worship is what happens here on Sunday morning. And that's the only true worship, when really that's not the case at all. We're told that we are called to declare his salvation from day to day, not just on one day, but every day. Last week we talked about how the importance of sharing our stories can have a huge impact on people around us. We talked about remembering your story and how Paul was constantly sharing his story in the New Testament. He was constantly telling people that, you know what, this is who I was, and this is who I am now, and the thing that's different is Christ. It's not just something I've done on my own. It's not me just trying to be a better person. 
It's not me trying to quit my bad habits cold turkey. No, the thing that's different about me, the reason my story changed is because of Christ and because of his grace. And that story had a huge impact on the world around Paul. And your story can have that same impact. You sharing your story of who you were and who you are now with Christ being the difference, that can have a huge impact. And that is an act of worship. You know, sometimes when we go to a great restaurant or when we see a great movie or when we read a great book, what's the first thing we do? If it's really great, we go and tell our friends, you got to eat at this restaurant. You won't believe it. It's great. You got to see this movie. It was awesome. You got to read this book here. I'll even let you borrow it. That's how great it is. Do we do the same with God? Because if he's truly worthy of worship, How can we not share it with our neighbors? How can we not tell of his salvation from day to day? How can we not share our story when we step back and truly understand what it is that Christ has done for us? And we see the change that has happened, not because of anything we've done on our own, but rather through the spirit working in us, through the grace that God has shown us through the blood that Christ shed for us. Tell of his salvation from day to day, not just by singing and not just on Sunday morning. Finally, verse 3, declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. Worship is not private. There are certainly aspects of worship that can happen in private. There's nothing wrong with having private worship time on a daily basis or something, having a devotional time, having a personal time of worship. But worship is never meant to be strictly private, ever, except for those daily times. I kind of contradicted myself there. But worship is not called to be a private affair. We are called to share our worship with the people around us, like we just talked about, sharing our stories. You know, there's often this big movement going around these days that says that, you know what, I love Jesus, but I hate the church, and so I'm just going to worship on my own. It's going to be my own private thing, and it's going to happen on my back porch on Sunday morning. And you know what, I'm not saying that that is never okay. There are times when, you know what, if you're on vacation, worship on your deck in your hotel. That's perfectly fine. But if your primary worship is happening where you're alone where you're isolated, where it's a private worship. It's a kind of worship that you don't ask other people about and you don't tell people about yours. Then you're missing the idea of worship. Sometimes I think we like to compartmentalize our lives as much as we possibly can. We have all these little boxes that we fit our lives into. We have our school box and our work box and our home box and our church box. And we don't ever want the things in the boxes to spill into one another. Because if they spill into one another, then our whole lives get thrown into chaos. And we often treat worship the same way. But worship is not private. And if your worship can be relegated to one little box of your life that doesn't overflow into the other boxes of your life, then guess what? That's not true worship. Worship infiltrates every area of life. It's not just singing. It's not just Sunday morning. And it's certainly is not just private. Let's pick up in verse 4. We've learned a little bit about what worship is. Let's learn a little bit about the God that we are worshiping. 
For great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. We talked a little bit about last week about the idea of idols. And how when you set these gods next to the one true God, the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you quickly discover that they really aren't gods after all. They're pieces of metal, rock, wood. They're made by human hands. They don't have the same power that this God of Israel does. Because he's not created. He's the one who creates everything. In our small group study this past week with a study we're doing with Tim Keller, Tim Keller said that if you want to discover your idols, look at your nightmares. And what he meant by that was imagine the one thing in your life that if that thing was taken away, you would lose your will to live. It wouldn't just be hard. It would be devastating. You wouldn't even want to wake up in the morning if you lost this one thing. Think about that one thing And Keller then argues that, you know what, if that one thing is not God, it's an idol. It's a worthless idol. It sounds strong. It sounds harsh. But there's something to it. You know, our problem is not that we don't worship enough. Our problem is that we worship the wrong things. We all worship on a daily basis. But what is it that we're worshiping? We worship something. We worship wealth. We worship success. We worship importance. We worship sex. We worship appearance. We worship the American dream. We all worship something. The question is not, do we worship? The question is, what is it that we're worshiping? Are we worshiping God? Or are we worshiping worthless idols? And what are our neighbors worshiping? Because once we realize that our idols are worthless, can we sit back and watch as our friends and our family and our neighbors sit back and worship their idols? Can we sit back and be okay with that? It's like what we talked about earlier with the restaurant and the movie and the book. When we see that, how can we not share it? How can we not share the one God that is worthy of worship? The one God who isn't a worthless idol, the one God who truly deserves worship over anything and everything else. Look at verse 7. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him, all the earth. The psalmist tells us that we, families of the peoples, people like us, we are called to ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Give him worship, give him honor, give him praise, not just because we want to be nice and we think that maybe he's worthy of it. We worship him because it is due him. God is God. And he deserves our worship at all times. 
for all that he is, not just for the parts that we like about him. And look at verse 9. So the splendor of holiness and tremble before him. Have you ever been asked that question? Well, if you had to sum up God in a few words, what would your words be? Well, we often say that, you know what? God is love and God is patience and God is grace and God is mercy and God is forgiveness. And all that stuff is absolutely 100% true. Do not get me wrong on that. However, when we're thinking of those words, how often do we use the word holy? How often do we use the idea of worthy of trembling before him? How often do we use the word just? Because God is all of these things. And none of these things override the other thing. God is fully love and fully patience and fully grace, but he's fully holy and fully deserving of our fear. But we don't like those words, holiness, fear, justice. We don't like the word holiness because we don't like the idea of a God who has standards. We don't like the idea of a God who commands that his people reflect his image. We don't like the idea of a God who hates sin just as much as he loves us. We don't like the idea of a God who doesn't condone every decision that we make. We don't like the idea of a God who doesn't affirm everything that we affirm. We don't like the idea of a holy God because that scares us. And rightfully so. God is to be feared. And don't get me wrong. There is an unhealthy level of fear of God. If that is your only motivation for following God, then that's not healthy. That's a problem if fear is your only motivation. But nonetheless, this fear of God that we see in the Psalms, this fear of God that we see in Scripture, it's more than just awe. It's more than just reverence. It's more than just respect. It is fear. Because God is the creator. God is the sustainer. God is just. God is holy. He is all of these things all perfectly wrapped together to a point that we can't even fathom all of it put together. Jesus tells us not to fear the people who can hurt us in this life, but fear the one who can hurt us in the next life. There is certainly an aspect of our relationship with God that deserves fear and trembling and humility and throwing ourselves at his feet. And the problem, if we ignore these ideas of holiness, if we ignore these ideas of fear, if we ignore these ideas of justice, if we worship the God that we think is appropriate, if we worship the God that we like, if we worship the aspects of God that we're comfortable with and leave the other things on the side, we really aren't worshiping God at all. We're worshiping a God that we have created in our image. We've made God into a worthless idol if we treat him as though he's something less than he actually is. We are called to worship God's every aspect of character, not just the parts that we like, not just the parts that make us comfortable, not just the parts that seem appropriate to us. God is God, and every single part of him is worthy of our worship. And you can't separate one part of God from all the other parts of God. We worship him for who he fully, truly is. 
and nothing less than that. Picking up in verse 10, final few verses of Psalm 96. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established, it shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad, let the earth rejoice, let the sea roar in all that fills it. Let the field exalt and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. Psalm 98 says something very similar in verse 7. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. What we see in these psalms is that every part of creation is eagerly and longingly awaiting the day that God's judgment comes. Doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. Judgment seems scary. Judgment seems harsh. Why would we rejoice for the day that judgment comes? Why would we look forward to that day? Creation does. It says that the heavens are glad, the earth is glad, the sea, the field, the trees, the rivers, the hills. Everything looks forward to this judgment coming, and the reason it looks forward to it, and the reason that we're called to look forward to it, is because he judges with righteousness, and he judges the people with equity. How many times do you watch the news and see some big public court case, and you don't agree with the verdict? And it just makes you so angry to hear that the person wasn't held accountable, that justice was not done. Well, here's the thing. We worship a God of justice. And when we look around us, we may think that justice is nowhere to be found. The righteous suffer. The unrighteous prosper. How is this fair? Well, God is still judge, even right now. Even when we look out among us, God is still judge. He is still righteous. He judges the people with equity. And the reason that we look forward to this judgment, the reason that all of nature and all of us are called to look forward to this judgment, it's like that passage in Revelation 21. We're told that every tear will be wiped away, that there will be no more mourning. There'll be no more crying, no more pain, that God will be with man and man will be with God. The separation of sin will be gone. The consequences of sin that taint the world in which we live will be reversed. There will be no more injustice. God's kingdom will be seen for what it truly and fully is in the creation around us. That's something that we are called to eagerly expect and joyfully wait for but at the same time judgment is an unfortunate thing at times because we see people that we love people that we know people that we care about who don't know christ and the idea of judgment coming sends a chill up our spines when we think of those people we love that's why we're called to share our stories 
That's why we're called to proclaim God's salvation among the nations, to declare it among all the peoples. Because judgment is coming. For those who know Christ, it's something to be looked forward to. For those who don't, it's not something to be looked forward to. Our friends and neighbors who don't know Christ, we're called to share our stories with them for that reason. So what does this all mean? Where do we go from here? We've read about what worship is. We've read a little bit about the God that we're called to worship. We've read a little bit about the aspects of God that are worthy of worship that we often choose to ignore because they make us uncomfortable. But what is true worship? What does worship look like? Open to John at chapter 4, verses 21 through 24. There's an extensive story about where Jesus confronts this Samaritan woman. And he asks the Samaritan woman for water. And it ends up going into this big, deep discussion about theology and life and how God relates to people and what is appropriate worship of God and where do you have to be to worship God? Is there a certain place you have to meet? And we pick up in verse 21. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The idea is that worship doesn't just happen in one place. It doesn't have to be on a mountain in Jerusalem. It doesn't have to be in a certain temple. Worship of God can happen anywhere because of what Christ has done for us. But he tells the woman that those who truly worship God, the kind of worshipers that God wants, are those who worship in spirit and and in truth. What does that even mean? We use the phrase all the time, but what does it mean to worship in spirit and in truth? The point is, we cannot truly worship God for who he really is, for the fullness of his character, in spirit and in truth, unless we have been born of the spirit. So if you are not a follower of Christ, you cannot truly worship God on your own. You need God's Spirit working inside of you, molding you, shaping you, conforming you to the image of Christ. Only with God's help can we truly worship Him in spirit and in truth. If you haven't made that decision to become a follower of Christ, I hope you will. And I hope you will worship God and give Him the worship that is due Him in the fullness of his character. But what if you are already a follower of Christ? What if you do have the Spirit? What if you are striving to worship in spirit and in truth? Turn to Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Paul has this huge, several chapter long discourse about the glories of God and how great the salvation of God is. And how it doesn't just come to Jewish people, but it can come to Gentiles too. 
And he says in verse tw- chapter 12, verse 1, after this big extensive talk of who God is, the only response that Paul has, the thing that he advises people to do as a response to these truths is this. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. If you are already a follower of Christ, listen to what Paul says. Make the daily decision to offer your body as a living sacrifice. To make your body a house of worship every single second of every single day. Don't let it be just a routine thing that you come here and do on Sunday mornings from 10 to 11.30. Offer your body as a living sacrifice at all times. Sing to the Lord a new song. Find new and creative and fresh ways to worship Him. Because this worship is due Him. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this day. Thank you for all that you've blessed us with. Thank you that we can come together and worship you. And God, we know that this call to worship we see in the Psalms, it's not just a call to worship for one service. It's a call to worship with our lives. It's a call for us to offer our bodies, offer our lives, offer every ounce of our being as a sacrifice to you. God, I pray that your spirit will be continually molding us and shaping us and transforming us to be the true worshipers that you call us to be, to be the holy people that you expect us to be, to be the people that reflect your character in the world around us through the decisions that we make, the things we say, the things we do, the relationships we have. God, I pray that you will give us the boldness and the courage to share our stories, to proclaim your salvation day to day. Thank you for the privilege we have to come here. Thank you for giving us this opportunity to worship you. Thank you for offering us the Holy Spirit to help make us the true worshipers you expect us to be. We love you. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he died on the cross for us, that he is worthy of worship. We love you. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. If you are not a follower of Christ, I hope you will talk to one of our elders. Elders, They'll be standing on the side of the room when the service is over. I pray that you will talk to them about what it means to fully believe and fully embrace Christ's death for you the body that was broken for you and for me, for our sins, the blood that was shed for us. Also, feel free to talk to them if you have any questions about our church, anything you'd like to pray with them about. I hope you'll take advantage of that.